This is an AMI podcast. Good morning. It's Tuesday, October the 17th, 2023. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown. Coming to you on AMI-tv, I'm Dave Brown. Let's hit the horns and go. Coming up on the show today, paracanoeer Brianna Hennessy is featured in tonight's episode of Level Playing Field on AMI-tv. Alex Smythe shares his one-on-one interview with her. Here's a question for you. Why aren't accessibility standards always required? Reporter Megan Gilmore offers a broader view of the difference between provincial and federal standards. Plus, the Manitoba election results still have people thinking. Journalist John Lepke reflects on the impact of the NDP's victory in the province. That and so much more coming your way over the course of the next couple of hours. But the show begins with the top story of the day. And it's all about the economy in your pocketbook, beginning with Stats Canada releasing their September inflation data just a few minutes ago. The rate of inflation continues to stabilize. Overall prices went up 3.8% year over year. There are a couple big spikes to be mindful of that are big inflation driver. Grocery prices went up 5.8% in September compared to 6.9% in August. So again, that's still a big increase outpacing generalized inflation, but slowing down a little bit. Meanwhile, higher gasoline prices put upward pressure on inflation as prices were 7.5% higher than they were in September of 2022. You might be asking uh, where you might have saved some money in September. Airfare. You know, that daily staple of life, flying on planes. The Bank of Canada will make its interest rate announcement next week. In a related story, Federal Industry Minister François-Philippe Champagne is expressing dismay as Canadian grocers drag their heels on price stabilization policies. Najoud Elmaliz explains. Earlier this month, Champagne announced that Loblaw, Metro, Empire, Walmart and Costco submitted plans to the federal government that included discounts, price freezes and price matching campaigns. He didn't divulge many details at the time, saying he wanted the grocers to compete with each other. But in an interview with the Canadian Press on Monday, Champagne revealed that he wishes the grocers were willing to be more open. Sobeys, for instance, has said that it does not plan to disclose what it will be doing before launching its campaign in stores for competitive reasons. Meanwhile, a spokeswoman for Walmart has said the company plans to continue offering everyday low prices. Nijuda Melissa Press, Ottawa. And over to the intersection of climate and business, new analysis shows that a significant number of small and medium-sized businesses across Canada have been impacted by climate change in the last 12 months. Don Kelly crunches the numbers. KPMG's survey finds more than 50% of firms saw their costs rise significantly as a result of extreme weather. 44% took a direct hit to their revenue. It says businesses need to make climate risk a priority as weather patterns change. This has been a record-breaking year for fires in B.C. and the Northwest Territories and for storms, floods and extreme heat in many parts of the country. Don Kelly, The Canadian Press, Toronto. And over to the housing file, the province of British Columbia has introduced new legislation to regulate short-term rentals. Lisa Laporte has the details. 
Premier David Eby says the number of short-term rentals has ballooned in recent years, noting new enforcement tools would reduce what he calls profit-driven mini-hotel operators. Housing Minister Ravi Callan says the legislation will target areas with high housing needs. It would force short-term rental platforms to share their data with the province for enforcement and tax purposes. It would also limit short-term rentals to within a host's own home or a basement suite or laneway home on their property. Most of the rules will apply to communities that have a population of 10,000 or more. Lisa Laporte, The Canadian Press. Of course, the story of regulating long short-term rentals is not isolated to British Columbia. Nova Scotia introduced some legislation a couple of weeks ago that's very similar to what was introduced in British Columbia yesterday. And the province of Quebec and the city of Montreal have been actively working on better and stronger regulation since that fire that killed over a dozen people last summer in old Montreal. One more story for you, and this comes from the irony file. Job networking site LinkedIn is laying off workers. Mike Dubusky has the story. 668 workers are being let go from LinkedIn. The layoffs affect the company's engineering, product, talent, and finance teams. In a statement, the company said talent changes are a difficult but necessary and regular part of managing our business. In May, LinkedIn laid off more than 700 employees, while parent company Microsoft let about 10,000 workers go at the beginning of this year. Microsoft also recently completed its acquisition of Activision Blizzard for almost $70 billion. Mike Dubusky, ABC News. Mm-hmm. Layoffs are just part of business, and so are $70 billion video game acquisitions. Let's get to the daily polls before I get myself in trouble. As always, the lawyers are always on standby when Dave Brown starts his show at 9 a.m. Eastern Time every morning. On Monday, you were asked at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook, do you invest in specialized exercise clothing and accessories? 62% of you said yes and 38% of you said no. Today's daily poll comes from the inflation file and the very much table stakes topic of grocery prices. Have you noticed any stabilization with grocery prices in the last few months? Yes or no? Obviously, I'm putting you into a binary of a question, but if you want to expand your thoughts on the answer to this daily poll, feel free to get involved in the comments section or even send uh, DMs or emails or phone calls. I'll give you those points of contact in just a moment, but let's bring in a little bit of perspective here, starting with a new voice and new contributor on the show. Laura Bain, you're going to be uh, taking over the entertainment file from Amanda Shikarchi and will be participating in the daily polls Tuesdays to Fridays. So Laura, what have you noticed at those grocery stores in the Halifax Regional Municipality? Yeah, you know, I'm going to say that I haven't noticed any stabilization and maybe it's because I was grocery shopping with my partner yesterday and I saw that pomegranates were in, you know, this time of year and I thought, ooh, I'm going to get a pomegranate. Six dollars for one pomegranate. So safe to say we did not buy it. But, you know, so I'm going to be a no, but it's honestly a little bit hard to tell because I feel like I've just adjusted my habits Mm. so much. Um, that I usually attribute any reduction or kind of stabilization of cost to just like more beans and rice, you know? 
Yeah, no, I mean, that, that's it. Like the habits have definitely shifted here inside the last 18 months when the real skyrocketing prices kicked in. And I know I made this transition to generic brands when I could. Also a lot of frozen and canned, which I know is not ideal, but it mm -hmm. does uh, save a little bit of money in the pocketbook there. But Laura, you are absolutely right. When, it, when you're talking about fresh produce, goodness gracious, those prices are high for the fruits, the veggies, the meats, et cetera. Pretty much uh, unless you're willing to eat pork, the the cost of meat is through the roof. So you're right. There's only so much budgeting you can do when a pomegranate is $6. Oh, yeah, for sure. Alex Smythe, what about you? I know uh, you're a pretty avid cook there on the home front in Burlington, Ontario. What are you noticing in terms of the grocery store? I, I know that this has been a regular topic for the better part of a year since you and I have been hanging out on the air. But what are you noticing? Yeah, I, I wonder if I'm kind of along the lines of what Laura said, where it's just you've adjusted your, your expectations so much that you don't really realize or, or identify what a stabilization is. I mean, like, you, you kind of think back, well, I remember when, you know, like, pomegranates or, or other fruits or veggies would be like, oh, this was a couple dollars when, you know, it was on sale or in season. Now it's like everything seemingly is like $5, $6, regardless of what you're buying. You know, like a couple heads of lettuce is is costing $5, $6. Milk is costing $6, $7 sometimes. Whoa, what like, kind of milk is Alex Smythe buying? Well, and, and just not even all the that great ones, but you have to shop around. And, and that's really where we've been kind of identifying. It's like, you know, there's there's less of those sales, less of those deals. That's really what I'm finding. And whether that is a, a lack of stabilization or all the different grocery chains have just said, you know what, this is kind of what we're setting the market rate at and we're just kind of sticking to it. That's what I've noticed more. Yeah. Um, and, and it comes down to like when you're, you're talking about meats and stuff, you, you do look at those alternatives. You look at those cheaper cuts or maybe less desirable kind of forms of it. Like for a chicken, well, maybe it's a whole chicken, which is a lot more cost effective than getting a couple chicken breasts. You right. Know, things or like chicken, that. And chicken you, thighs, baby. Get them chicken, chicken thighs, thighs going. Chicken thighs are great. Yeah, exactly. So there, it, it's a whole rethinking of how you approach grocery shopping. And you, you both mentioned the frozen and the canned stuff like in, in the dried uh, uh, non-perishables, those are kind of becoming more and more important staples as you, you go to the grocery store. So I think there's just the overall shopping philosophy has changed that it's, it's hard to really yeah. sift through and identify whether it's a stabilization or just our habits have changed so much it's not recognizable to what it was before. Well, there's value in non-perishable as well because if you're going to spend $6 on that pomegranate, there's no assurance that it's not going to spoil <laughs> on you inside about uh, 12 hours or by the time you get home from the store. The one thing that I think you've both identified really well there is something that I've been yammering on about since the inflation conversation started 18 months ago, and that's that stabilization does not mean a price decrease. Especially with things like food items, you're just not going to see decreases. The best you can hope for is a price stabilization. And then you've seen routinely in the last six to eight months as the inflation number has at least settled. I, I, don't, I don't like using the word slow down or inflation is falling. It's settling.
a little bit. It's stabilizing a little bit. The grocery prices have not. Grocery prices have routinely outpaced the overall inflation rate, which is a big concern, which is why you see the federal government stepping in and saying, okay, guys, there comes a point where you as major grocers have to reconcile this difference. And when you start getting to 5.9% versus 3.8%, earlier in the year, it was when the overall number was closer to three, the grocery number was nine. You know, maybe this is self-regulating a little bit, but there's still some slowness going on. So yeah, when I say stabilization, I'm not saying, is your grocery bill cheaper? One of the realities of life is that uh, prices will rise, politicians will philander, and you too will get old. At Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook, that's where you can vote on social media. You can also get involved in the comment section, maybe start a little spamming war with uh, your friends and family. You can also get involved via email, feedback at ami.ca, feedback at ami.ca, or you can pick up your phone and punch in this number. Here, let's do it together. I'm gonna grab my phone at the same time. I'll put this on speed dial. Here we go, getting my phone. Getting the keypad out. One, eight, six, six, five, zero, nine, forty, five, forty-five, one, eight, six, six, five, zero, nine, forty-five, forty-five. You know what? I don't have this in my speed dial yet. I, what am I going to label this? The Dave Brown Hotline. Your Brownie Central. We'll workshop it. Coming up after the break. Paracanoer Brianna Hennessy is featured in tonight's episode of Level Playing Field on AMI-TV. Alex Smythe will share his one-on-one -on -one interview with her. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-TV. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-TV. A new episode of Level Playing Field drops tonight on AMI. It features canoeer Brianna Hennessy and follows her on her Parasport journey. Alex Smythe met up with Brianna a couple of weeks ago at the Level Playing Field screening in downtown Toronto. He's going to share a bit of that conversation today. Hello, Alex. Hello again, Dave. So, Alex, what is some of the relevant background on Brianna? Yeah, so Brianna was a, uh, a high performance and competitive athlete prior to acquiring her disability later in life. Uh, she was in high school, she was uh, very competitive. She was also uh, an Ontario uh, ranked, if not medalist in, in sports like boxing, things like that. So she has a very strong athletic background just naturally and then through her her family and her parents as well. But after she acquired her disability, uh, she was really a bit lost in her own words. And it was during her rehabilitation or rehab and that she was introduced to the sport of wheelchair rugby. And that was actually her first kind of introduction to parasport. And, you know, she was always someone, as I said, through boxing, she, she loved physical contact mm -hmm. sports. And so wheelchair rugby just kind of opened her eyes to a new <laughs> rolling world. Of, murder, oh, can, rolling murder ball, as they call exactly. it. Exactly. I can hit people and get away with it, and it's encouraged. And so that really spawned uh, a, a fresh perspective for her in terms of 
uh, para-sport and the possibilities within that. And so after she's really kind of developed her, her kind of her, her network, her social group and, and her, her para-sport group within wheelchair rugby, she discovered other para-sports as well, including, including para-kayak and para-canoe. Well, you spoke to her. Let's find out what Brianne had to say. Brianna, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. So you are quite a unique athlete. You're, you've been excelling in two sports in a relatively short amount of time. Did you intend to be a two-sport athlete or was it just something that kind of unfolded naturally for you? Um, honestly, I love canoeing. I, I feel like that's like power to the water. So it's more kind of my personality. Um, and I always say the kayaking side is, is more, I guess, my, my coach's idea. <laughs> it's a lot harder for me to balance with my core weakness in kayak. Um, so it's a lot more of a struggle and falling in the water a lot more. So um, I always call that one kind of like my uh, surprise box sport. We're not really ever sure what's going to happen. <laughs> I'm more consistent in canoes. So uh, lots to work on in both, though. But, and then on top of that, you also do wheelchair rugby as well. <laughs> um, yeah, wheelchair rugby is, I would say, who I am at my core, I guess. The contact sports is what I grew up with, so that's what I know best, yeah. And so, uh, speaking of which, you know, prior to uh, acquiring your disability, you were still a competitive athlete. What sort of, I guess, um, elements or aspects of, of the para-sport and that transition surprised you? I think the biggest part with accessibility sports is just, um, I guess, having the accessibility equipment. So I resisted starting Parasport for two and a half years after my accident because uh, I didn't want to kind of accept that I had disabilities. So it's kind of the same timing that you go through kind of um, understanding your new body um, post-injury kind of thing um, and lots of the emotions and, you know, um, really dark depression that lots of us go through after that time. Um, but, you know, once I, I always say once I tried wheelchair rugby and I sat in the chair for the first time, then I, I kind of, you know, kicked myself in the butt for not putting my pride and stubbornness aside a lot earlier. So, <laughs> yeah. And you get to claim and bang with everyone else, right? <laughs> yes, and exactly. and you're not getting in trouble. You're, you're encouraged to do it. Yes, exactly. It's like adult bumper cars. <laughs> so in terms of the success that you've, you have had in the paddle sports and, and just, again, like in the relatively short time that since you, you engaged with those sports that you, you're now very competitive on the circuit, like what do you attribute that to, that drive, that competitive nature you have? Um, I mean, definitely what I've known my whole life, right? So I think for me, it's sport has always been the biggest part of my identity. Um, so it was something familiar to me um, after my accident. Um, and you know, I always, I always say that my resilience and my tenacity, uh, just even getting through my accident and sort of getting back into sport or, or finding something uh, or a new purpose again in my life is, is because of sport and is sport, right? Um, so for me, you know, the power of sport has always been an integral part in my life uh, and, and close to my heart and, and that of my family too. So both my parents, um, they played at the national football level for over a decade each. So I grew up on the side of a, a football field and a jolly jumper. So <laughs> that's really like all I know, you know, it's, it's in uh, every fiber of me. So, yeah. So going forward, going into this year, do you have any goals in mind, any expectations, any um, milestones that you want to achieve personally? Um, I mean, I'm super excited. Uh, I, I, I qualified a, uh, a Canadian spot, a quota spot. Um, so, of course, we have to, to qualify domestically. But um, I would love this time in Paris to go and have my family there. I think that's going to be the biggest sort of uh, milestone or difference for me is I've always had my dad at my, and my, you know, my mom. I, I've lost my mom this year. But 
um, just having them at, at a huge event like that uh, would be wonderful. And in Tokyo, we weren't allowed to do that, right? It was very, it was during the COVID time and it was very weird just kind of having the quiet stands. So um, I think for me, you know, being able to medal for Canada um, in one or two sports uh, with my family there is, is probably going to be the best time of my life, yeah. And speaking of that the contrast between Paris and Tokyo, do you feed on the energy of the crowd when you are competing? I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm, I'm an outgoing, bubbly person, so I love that energy. We had our, our um, Canadian, our, our, the World Championships in Canada this past year for the first time, like over a decade in, in paddling, um, and the energy there of the Canadian crowd and winning double medaling in Canada. I mean, it was surreal for me. It was unbelievable, and it was the last um, event that my mom came to to watch me. So um, I definitely feed off the crowd, and it's funny because I, I I grew up with my parents being very like active in my sports and supportive, and always yelling from the stands. You know, they were the crazy parents <laughs> kind of thing. So um, whenever I'm paddling, I can always hear. You know, I heard my mom on one shoulder. And and then my coach Joel on the other one, even though there was, you know, 10,000 fans, I could still pick out their voices going down the race course, you know. Um, but, uh, but yeah. <laughs> one uh, part of your story that I've always found uh, very interesting is the fact that you always want to give back. You, you want to really grow the sport for women and girls. What does it mean and, and how do you feel that being a part of this uh, season of Level Playing Field and, and having your episode, what is that going to do to help kind of meet your goal and, and, and uh, push the, the movement forward for sports for girls and women? I mean, I think we see, you know, um, when we compare sort of able-bodied sports to para-sport, right, um, we just don't get that exposure. And, you know, um, even if I would have had my accident 20 years ago, I, you know, the same opportunities wouldn't have been out there or we would not even have known of, of them, right? So, um, you know, in... Um, in Tokyo was the first time that we got some airtime um, <laughs> on the Paris side, um, and I hope that keeps growing for Paris. I'm super excited to see that. And um, but um, I think that the 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 biggest difference is is other people with disabilities being able to see that. And maybe you know, like I always say, if I can inspire one girl, you know, with my whole journey, then I've done something right. I've done my job. That's something I can take with me. So yeah. I mean, just speaking for myself, if, if you're not getting inspired by your bubbly personality, <laughs> your your success on uh, in in the sports, I mean, what else can you be doing, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, I I hope that my passion for sport comes through with with uh, yeah <laughs> with everything that I do. So yeah, Brianna, thank you so much. Of course. <laughs> Alex, you didn't just get a chance to speak to Brianna that night. You actually got a sneak peek of the level playing field episode that drops tonight. What did you take away from her story? Yeah, well, and you you heard me reference a couple times within that interview, just a short period of time in which the, she became competitive on the water. And to put it in context, we're, we're talking mere months uh, from when she first got into a canoe, into a kayak, to the point where she was already qualifying for Paris, like it, it was such a remarkable turnaround in terms of how quickly she was able to not only pick up the sport, uh, pick up a uh, like water sports for the first time since acquiring her her disability, to being one of the top athletes in the world in those two different disciplines. It, it's truly remarkable. It shows the the drive, the competitive nature she has. And then also on top of that, in the interview, you, you hear it and, and it's expanded on in the, the series, just the, the importance that family has uh, for her and, and uh, the impact that when, when she does have her, her family there cheering her on, it, it really means the world to her. So those are a couple other elements you really get to uh, enjoy and experience a bit more uh, within the episode. 
Alex, thank you for this. Brianna Hennessy will be competing at the 2024 Paralympics in Paris. Her episode of Level Playing Field airs tonight at 9.30 p.m. Eastern Time on AMI-tv. And of course, you can find the show on demand on the AMI app for Apple or Android, or just head over to the freshly launched amiplus.ca, amiplus.ca. Coming up after the break, why aren't accessibility standards standardized? Why aren't they always required? Reporter Megan Gilmore offers a broader view of the difference between provincial and federal standards. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Let's continue the conversation on accessibility standards. Draft regulations for a standard on employment are still open for public review. You heard about those last time reporter Megan Gilmore dropped by. But Megan has stayed on this beat and looked further into accessibility standards in an article that was published for Canadian Affairs. And Megan is going to share what she's learned. Hello, Megan. Hello, Dave. How are you? Megan, I'm good, so I hinted at this, but how did mm -hmm. this story get started for you? Right. So as we mentioned in my last segment, I recently got a new job as a reporter at Canadian Affairs, and one of the things that we uh, like to cover is issues related to work and just people's working lives. And I was like, oh, there's this draft standard on employment for people with disabilities. Let's do a story about that. Employment for people with disabilities, challenges and successes, you know, like... We've, we've all read these stories. We, we, Dave, you could write it in your sleep. Um, so then I was explaining this whole thing about accessibility standards to my editor and explaining how sometimes people make accessibility standards, but they don't ever, ever, like nothing ever really happens to them after they're approved. And she was like, oh, that's really fascinating. You should just look into accessibility standards in general, like across the country. And so that is what I tried to do. And that is what happened. So Megan, you and I love to talk about words and what words mean and the importance of words. What's the difficulty with using the word standard? How come the word standard isn't standardized? Right, yeah. So and this was a this was a big conversation that one of my other editors and I had when we were going through this piece. So on this show, we talk about accessibility standards, and that is the word that is, like, it's called Accessibility Standards Canada. That's, like, the name of the organization. That's the word that is used in federal and provincial accessibility legislation. Yay, like, that's the word. However, the word standard may give some people the impression that, A, everything is, like, the same, like you were saying, standardized, or that it's required. Like, this is a standard that mm. you have to meet up to. Like, you know, if you have a job and there's standards they should reach up to, or like cleaning standards, like things like this, it's something that you have, you actually have to do. And, but when you look at the legislation about accessibility standards, that's not actually the case. So we're gonna get into this, but a standard only becomes mandated once it becomes a regulation. But we use the word standard when we're talking about its creation which then can get a little confusing for people. Right, but the, a standard, as you say, until it's framed in cement with regulation and maybe a punishment for not meeting the standard, yeah. at that point is simply a best practice or a suggested yeah. practice. Right, 
Yeah, recommendation. This is a good thing for you to do. You should do it. It's a good thing. But we use the word standard. And if you're not as like having conversations about this on a regular basis, like we are listening to these conversations if you're in the audience, um, it, it's a little nuance that is very easily to be misunderstood or um, not uh, explained well unless somebody takes the time to explain to you that just because something is called a standard, that doesn't mean that it's required. And this isn't just an accessibility standards. Like there's all sorts of standards yeah. in, in this country and they're not, mo mo most of them are actually voluntary, um, but we still use the word standard. No, it, it can be a little bit of a journey, especially if you think about this from the federal point of view. Accessibility yeah. Standards Canada was really only created a couple of years ago when you really get down oh, yeah. to it. So as yeah. you started diving a little deeper into this, what did you learn about their work so far? Sure. So, and just to remind people, Accessibility Standards Canada created under the Accessible Canada Act that was passed in uh, spring summer of 2019. They Accessibility Standards Canada, which went through a bazillion name changes, it felt like in those few months after the the legislation was passed, they get started beginning of 2020. Okay, like just before COVID hits. Uh, so they're starting to build momentum, and then we get a pandemic, and everything has. Change. So since this time, they have published three completed standards uh, that are on uh, the national website for standards under the CSA group. Two of these were updates to existing standards. And uh, to create these standards, they worked very closely with the CSA group, which is a, a national organization that does standards for various things across Canada. So the three standards that they've completed and published, there's one that has to deal with like uh, built environment, like, like buildings. There's one that has to do with automatic uh, like banking machines and things like that, that would fall under that. Um, and then one that has to do with like house houses and dwelling places and things like that. So any standard that we've talked about on this program recently, so whether that's the draft standard for outdoor places, um, or spaces or the draft standard for employment. They have another draft standard up for review right now about emergency preparedness. Those are all in various stages of development. Uh, they're not finished yet. And Accessibility Standards Canada was very kind to send me this very long list of like every technical committee that they have right now. Um, there's a lot going on, but in terms of completed standards, there's only been three that have been published. They have not been sent for federal approval to be made into regulations. Right. So they are just best practices standards that are out there. Which again, understanding this is a journey, that, that especially when you're talking about the legal or government framework, you have to accept that the wheels of progress are going to move slowly because you want to get them right. But where are the places where standards are, accessibility standards are actually standard and required? Right, so that would be in some provinces where accessibility standards have been accepted by provincial governments and adopted into regulations. So specifically Ontario and Manitoba, both have passed several accessibility standards since their accessibility legislation uh, was passed. Um, and just, so we talk about these big reviews, right? We, did, we talked about the review of the Nova Scotia Accessibility Act. Uh, we have talked about reviews of the AODA, the Accessibility the, <laughs> Insurance Accessibility Act. I think we're up to uh, like a third or fourth review of the AODA, yeah. and it keeps telling us we're not going to meet the we're not going to meet the timeline. Yeah, pretty much. I'll just say, spoiler, we can talk about this stuff. Um, but also individual standards 
have a legislative review. They need to be reviewed every five years. So um, Ontario is in the process of reviewing its customer service standard. Manitoba is in the process of creating a transportation standard. It has had several drafts. There's much to be said about Manitoba's uh, transportation uh, standard. Um, and then also in Ontario, we've had draft standards, so like recommended standards. We talked about them on this show in the past few years, education, healthcare. Those have been sent to the appropriate government ministry and we do not know what has happened to them since then. They have been sent there, they have been there for years, and we are waiting. But there are some that haven't passed into regulations. There's just concerns that they're, they, some, in some cases that they're out of date. Um, but again, these regulations also get reviewed, uh, are supposed to get reviewed on a regular basis. Megan, if you were to take a, a broader look at this, yeah. in, in sort of the definition that you laid out before in regards to the terminology, that a standard is not a standard until it's enshrined into law with, you know, mm -hmm. consequences of missing the yeah. standard. What are, like, what's the bigger picture here about standards being a requirement for accessibility? Right. I think it is important to note that you can, if you are an organization, let's say you're an employer or you're a government agency, I actually think it is possible, in my humble opinion, for you to become more accessible without a standard being made into regulation. So what I mean by that is, as you said, a lot of the things that are mentioned, let's say in the, let's say in the draft employment standard, you could consider them to be best practices and people who work and disability employment will say a lot of these things are best practices that we've actually known about for years. And in some cases, organizations are already adopting them. So I spoke to a woman, Amy Lonsberry, from a family foundation in Calgary uh, that works with individuals who have autism. And she helps organize a network called Worktopia, helps increase employment for individuals who are on the spectrum. They, they That organization has been doing some of the things that is are mentioned in the draft employment standard for years. And they did that before Accessibility Standards Canada came out with this draft employment standard. So I do think, um, and, and this is not to excuse slow governments, but like it is possible for an organization to make a decision that is, we are going to take this on ourselves. We're not going to wait for government regulation. Mm -hmm. We're not going to wait for a government-regulated penalty if we don't do it, and we're just going to do it. You are able to do that. That's why these are published publicly in their draft form so that you can get ideas. Megan, there's a saying going around in modern business that culture eats strategy for breakfast. Companies can have a million meetings about uh, what they want to do with their standards, but it's the culture that matters. So I think what you're getting at there is companies, if they embrace inclusion and accessibility at their core, it's not a question of waiting for someone else to do the work. You have it built into your culture. That was something Denis Boudreau was talking about yesterday about, yeah. about inclusive hiring practices. It's like a warm handshake when you're coming towards people with an inclusive culture rather than saying, fix my culture for me. Right, yeah, and that's a great way of putting it. And I would, um, I, I think it does raise a question. If you are only doing something accessibility related because the government has told you that you must, and if you don't do it and they find out there's a possibility that you will face a monetary fine, if that's the only reason why you're doing it, I would question 
do you actually even care about this? Mm -hmm. Like, is this even something that's important to you really as a value? Or is it just, we want to comply so that we don't get dinged with a fine and people find out that we did comply? As I continue to be a quote machine from movies from the late 90s, I referred to the 1999 film Office Space when a manager tells one of the servers, what do you think of people who just do the bare minimum? Megan, thank you for this. The article was really interesting. Have a great day. Thank you. Megan Gilmore is a reporter for Canadian Affairs. A link to her piece on accessibility standards will be available on the blog, ami.ca slash now, ami.ca slash now, where you can find it right from the source, canadianaffairs.news, canadianaffairs.news. Go support Megan Gilmore at canadianaffairs.news. In 60 seconds, Alex Smythe has the weather story of the day. But first, here is Canadian press reporter, Lori Paris with your morning business minutes. North American markets open today in the black thanks to a broad-based rally led by strength in base metal, financial, and technology stocks. The S&P TSX Composite Index starts the day up 157 points at 19,620. In New York, the Dow Jones Industrial Average added 314 points to 33,984. The S&P 500 index increased by 45 points to 4,373, while the Nasdaq Composite gained 160 points to 13,567. Asian shares have advanced after U.S. stocks rallied as investors unwound some of last week's moves driven by worries about war in the Middle East. Markets are awaiting China's latest economic growth figures, which are due out Wednesday. Japan's Nikkei surged 381 points to close at 32,040. South Korea's Kospi climbed 23 points to 2,460. The Shanghai Composite Index inched up 9 points to 3 3083 and our dollar is trading overseas this morning at 73.40 cents US virtually unchanged from yesterday's close of 73.43 cents US from the Canadian press business desk I'm Lori Paris thank you very much Lori let's bring in Alex for the weather story of the day Alex keeping your eye on the west coast just like yesterday yeah, Dave, uh, we're going to be following up on a story that I talked about last week with regards to the remnants of Typhoon Bolivin, which is in the Pacific uh, area, and it's going to be making its way through BC over the next couple of days. There's now more clarity of what that impact is going to look like. So the remnants that have been uh, lingering in, in the Pacific Ocean have met up with an atmospheric river. What that means is it's going to be a lot of moisture and a lot of wind in BC. Just how much? Well, Vancouver Island can expect to see up to 300 millimeters of rain over the next couple of days, Dave. So the areas most at risk are going to be along the west side of Vancouver Island. So places like Tofino, they're going to be the ones getting hit hardest with that upwards of 300 millimeters of rain. Elsewhere, parts of the, the coast of the mainland, you could see upwards of 150 millimeters of rain through Thursday. And in terms of the wind, the most severely hit is gonna be places like Haida Gwaii, which could see winds up to 100 kilometers per hour. So for a bit of context on all this, in October, the average amount of rainfall for Victoria is just over a hundred millimeters per month for the month of October. So in these next two days, they may double, may even triple that wow. average amount for wow. the month with this one one system making its way through.
Alex, thank you for this. Coming up after the break, CNIB's Clearing Our Path program aims to address the need for creating accessible environments. Sault Ste. Marie community reporter Dorothy McNaughton will have some perspective and details. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Inclusive design should be at the forefront of any new infrastructure these days. Architects, builders, designers, they all have a responsibility. The CNIB's Clearing Our Path program aims to tackle just that. Sault Ste. Marie community reporter Dorothy McNaughton has more information on the program. Hey, good morning, Dorothy. Good morning, Dave. Dorothy, why did you want to take a little time this morning to highlight CNIB's Clearing Our Path program? Well, for one thing, it's been around quite a long time, and a lot of people don't know about it. Mm. Um, I, I've been aware of it for a long time, and I think it's, a, it's an excellent document. Um, it gives organizations that are looking at you know, designing a new building or renovating, um, looking at what they can do to make it much more inclusive, as you said, for people with vision loss. What I find sometimes with uh, designs of buildings, you know, is they have a bit narrower view of what uh, universal design is, or uh, they they build, they design um, for people with certain disabilities, and people with vision loss are sometimes left out of the picture, so to speak. So um, when I was uh, working with uh, another person on the local accessibility advisory committee and looking at the new bus terminal that they haven't built yet here it's it's on hold but um an architect had designed it but there were certain things i felt that they hadn't taken into account so i sent this document to the accessibility coordinator she really really appreciated it and i highlighted what kinds of things were missing what, what was missing dorothy um, I would say the biggest thing that I found was um, like navigation aids such as um, texture on the floor, um, like being able to wayfind once you got off a bus yeah. to, to get into the terminal and then find your way around the terminal um, and find your way to the washrooms, find your way to the counter. Um, there was nothing. Yeah, I, it's something that I've noticed as well, Dorothy, that it seems like they have these narrow focuses, like you pointed out before. They think of accessibility as a checklist. Oh, we've got a ramp, we're all good. We've got an accessible washroom, we're all good. Like, let alone the quality of your PA speaker. So if you're gonna be doing audible announcements, I can actually understand what you're saying uh, in terms of any kind of quality like that or wayfinding. Yes. You know, yes, so I, was exactly. talk I was talking to somebody uh, who's a regular user of the Toronto subway recently, and they were pointing out, there's really no markers on where the subway doors are going to open and this seems like a really basic thing montreal does it vancouver does it you'd think the biggest city in canada would kind of have that figured out yes and that's where best practices come into account and that's where this kind of document is really really helpful yeah like i think i think we should all send it to our municipalities when they're looking at a building or renovating 
uh, buildings that are used a lot by the public. And, and I mean, they have to follow regulations, uh, you know, in many provinces, as Megan was talking about, for accessibility standards. Well, you know, it doesn't necessarily cover all the detail that this kind of a document does. You know, it talks about accessible bus shelters even and queuing lines and like very, very detailed, which I really appreciate it. I think it's a great document and it's all online for people to access. Yeah, it's, it's at the CNIB's website, cnib.ca. I'm not gonna read the whole uh, URL here because we'll be here for the rest of the hour if I do that. <laughs> it will go up on the blog after the show, ami.ca, but I would also imagine if you punched in CNIB clearing our path document into your Google machine, I suspect a couple links will uh, get you pretty close to where you wanna go, but ami.ca slash now, cnib.ca, or uh, try to punch it into the old Google machine. Dorothy, I'm 100% on board with you in terms of getting this document into the hands of civil engineers and city planning yep. departments. But I would also mm -hmm. love to see this brought forward to a lot of uh, university design classes. I know that people like uh, Thea Curdy, formerly uh, of her company, used to be doing going to architectural classes and saying, here are universal standards, universal design, design standards, and teaching classes about this. I would love for a document like this to essentially be a reading, to essentially be a module or, 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 or one week's worth of classes for these architectural students. Yeah, I, I agree 100%. Architects and engineers, they, they should know more about this kind of thing. Yeah, 100%. Speaking of getting great contributions from the community in regards to projects, the accessibility coordinator in the Sioux is asking mm -hmm. locals to participate in website testing. You're involved in this, Dorothy. Surprise, surprise. What has your experience been like so far? Well, it's actually not ready to be tested yet, uh, nor is the... Uh, the website for Ontario Northland, which Marcy Yale from AABC and myself will be testing. Um, I wanted to get across the point that beta testing of websites by people with disability is critical. Um, it isn't, we can't rely on a website designer to say, yes, this website is totally accessible without it being tested by users. So Dorothy, what do you think folks can do to push organizations to include more user testing for their websites early in the process as opposed to late in the process? Yeah, that's a really good point. That That's the key. Um, I think it's just if we use a certain website or we use, let's say, a, the city transit website, for example, so the city's website, um, we need to be in touch with the city to say, you know, are you looking at revising your website anytime soon? And if you are, um, you know, I'm someone in the disability community that, that is really concerned that the website be totally accessible. So through the city, through the city's accessibility coordinator, if your city has one, some of the smaller cities don't, um, to, to say, look, um, to explain to them why it's so important that particularly for people with screen readers that, you know, if you're putting all this money into uh, revising or 
designing an entirely new website, make sure it's totally accessible. And I think that's a point we have to get across yeah. to a lot of organizations. Um, with Ontario Northland, I'm very fortunate. I'm the chair of the Accessibility Advisory Committee for Ontario Northland, and Marcy Yale's also on that committee, as I mentioned. And they want us to test their website. That's going to be pretty soon uh, before it goes live. And Boy, do I appreciate that. Yeah, it's not 1999 anymore. People aren't <laughs> yeah. building uh, websites with GeoCities and AngelFire and basic HTML code. The standards exist to create accessible right. websites. It's not rocket science. So yeah, the, the patience at this point for companies sort of trotting out uh, incomplete or inaccessible websites uh, is definitely uh, running out at this juncture. Dorothy, speaking of technology, the Northern Ontario Rural Get Together with Technology Groups hosting another session this month. In fact, it's happening tonight. Dorothy, what's on top? What's on deck for tonight? Well, as you know, and I speak about it often, we base uh, what the topic is on what people in the group need help with. So uh, we had quite the discussion last time about the new iOS 16 coming out. And a lot of people were either leery about it or had already downloaded it and were having difficulty with it. So Elmer Thiessen from BC, who's one of our regular group and is often someone who speaks about a topic, he's going to be there to answer questions. He's tested it out already. He's looked at different bugs and what the fixes are. And, um, and then other people in the group, as always, contribute their experiences. And so... Um, since it's pretty new and a lot of people might have difficulty with it, it's a great opportunity to to learn how to um, how to get through those challenging little little quirks, you know. Mm -hmm. Well, if you want to be part of this introductory session on iOS 17, uh, you can contact David Green at the Canadian Council of the Blind in Ottawa, david.gtt at ccbnational.net, david.gtt at ccbnational.net. And again, that event is tonight, October the 17th at 7 p.m. Eastern time. Hey, Dorothy, one last piece of housekeeping on the way out of here. Happy 47th anniversary. Oh my gosh. You're, thank you so much. Yes, my husband and I have been together a long time. Maybe I shouldn't have said that number out loud. I apologize. I'm no, sorry. That's okay. No, no, no problem. <laughs> I, we, we actually celebrated in Niagara Falls. <laughs> oh, that's lovely. Well, Dorothy, congratulations. Yes. Uh, lovely news. Always great to hear from you. Thank have a you. wonderful day, and we'll talk to you in a couple weeks. You bet. Thanks, Dave. That's Dorothy McNaughton, community reporter in Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario. Don't forget the blog address if you want more information on those stories, ami.ca slash now, ami.ca slash now. In a moment, Laura Bain will share the entertainment report. But first, the war in Israel has put a spotlight on disinformation across social media. Mike Dubusky has more in Tech Trends. Zoe Schiffer of Platformer says a number of new social platforms have emerged since Elon Musk took over Twitter, but several of them, particularly Threads, an offshoot of Instagram, still don't include some popular features focused on news, such as trending topics. Part of the reason that they are being very slow to roll out things like trending topics that would be very useful in a moment of crisis is that they do not want to do that if it's going to invite a lot of disinformation because those things can be manipulated. But she 
she says Threads has distinguished itself in recent days. Search function isn't great. Trending topics don't exist yet. Hashtags do not exist. And yet it has one thing that X does not have right now, which is that it is not a wash in disinformation. And in a moment of crisis, that's worth a lot. With Tech Trends, I'm Mike Dubusky, ABC News. Thank you very much, Mike. Let's head over to Laura Bain for the entertainment report. Laura, this first one for you is coming from the world of personal experience. Yeah, you know, I'm starting things off with some opera, Dave. So starting it <laughs> off a little bit, <laughs> a little bit strange. On, but, a, on uh, a high note, on a high note, if you will. Uh, but um, bump. Um, yeah, so this weekend I had a chance to check out the world premiere of February, the opera. So this was put on by Opera on the Avalon uh, out of St. John's, Newfoundland. So I was streaming this performance. And this was based on the book by Lisa Moore, Canadian author of the same name. Uh, and if that sounds familiar to folks, it did win the CBC Canada Reads book competition back in 2013. So this opera was a collaboration between Moore and American opera composer Laura Kaminsky and it's a fictionalized story based on the aftermath of the real-life tragedy of the Ocean Ranger uh, which if you're not familiar that was an offshore oil rig that sank off the coast of St. John's back in 1982 following a Valentine's Day storm and it all 84 crew members on board were were killed mm. um, so the, re the reason I wanted to bring this forward I'm not an opera buff I do like opera I have a couple of opera records actually in my collection but <laughs> I, th I think people tend to think of opera as being kind of highfalutin or like a little bit inaccessible oh for um, sure for sure yeah, like, you know I, I think about the opera is you've got to put the tuxedo on to go see that one can't show up or in your jeans and a t-shirt yeah, you know, and it's often not in not in English, and um, like the stories tend to be a little bit older. But this was so cool because it was that classic opera sound with the vibrato, and you know the performers just using their lung power to to amplify their voices. But they were singing lines like, you know, "Hey, didn't we agree to keep this relationship casual?" Um, <laughs> or, <laughs> "Oh, do you think the baby will be a boy or a girl or non-binary?" So I just thought that that was so cool, and and maybe a way to bring people into a genre that they wouldn't uh, normally explore. Like, like making it more colloquial, right? Making it more just sort of understandable to people. Like you said, the language yeah. side of it. The reality is I'm not going to go spend $100 to go listen to something in Italian for two hours. I don't speak Italian. Yeah, exactly. I really like that word colloquial because that was how it felt. It felt very everyday. Um, so, you know, it, it also incorporated elements of Newfoundland culture. There was some fiddle music and step dancing in one scene. Um, it was really funny in parts, but um, overall it was a pretty, um, it was a story about grief and this family coming to terms with the loss of mm. this character, Cal, who was a husband and father um, who who died on the rig. And, and I thought it was so cool, actually. He stayed present in the performance, um, but he was lit in blue uh which signified that he was uh you know speaking from beyond the grave but also blue like like the ocean because he he drowned in the ocean whereas the other characters were were warm so oh, interesting. um yeah it was it was very poignant um but, uh, you know, this is something they only have the two performances in St. John's uh, kind of scheduled for, for the moment that happened last weekend. But they want to bring it to a national audience to highlight this piece of history that still really resonates uh, for many in Newfoundland. But also, uh, you know, it it this 
it really feels very modern in terms of the climate crisis and the okay, role of yeah. oil extraction. And there's one character in particular who's really wrestling throughout with, uh, you know, with kind of moral dilemmas there. But Dave, I want to pose a question for you, which is what book, TV show or movie would you like to see turn? turn into an offer what would, what would get your bum in the seat well, well you kind of have this like dramatic story lined up here that like is very sincere and honest in its exploration of, of Canadian history can I be like a little bit of a jerk about it and say give me an operatic rendition of the OC the teen dramedy from 2003 it's actually it's a 20 year anniversary this year of the show's debut the show was very musical and it was very dramatic so why not turn it into an opera I would I would go watch the OC opera uh, spectacular the opera yeah, sea. <laughs> I would go see that as well. Um, and, and thinking about this for myself, I'm going to go back to a conversation you and I had last week. I think any season of Love is Blind oh. really lends <laughs> itself to <laughs> opera. I mean, think about it. You've got the hair, the makeup, the big personalities, you know, the the drama. So uh, I think, well, any reality dating <laughs> show, but maybe especially Love is Blind would be really interesting. <laughs> Laura, I was not expecting that. I was not expecting the reality TV opera, although people do refer to reality TV as soap operas. So, like, there could be something there. Laura, got to be a little quick on this last thought here, but you had a chance to watch this opera digitally, and this has mm -hmm. become a little more standard here, especially since the pandemic, where there were a lot of streamed concerts or streamed events. It's not exclusive to the pandemic. It certainly existed before the pandemic. But what is becoming your preference, the in-person experience or the at-home, on-your-couch experience? Uh, you know, I got to be honest that watching it from the couch is just so accessible in so many ways and it does open up things that are maybe not happening in your region but i do feel like there would have been something powerful about seeing this in person with the saint john's audience i'm trying to get myself out more to concerts and things like that so i think there's like the aspirational answer which is in person and it does bring something but then there's also that accessibility and ease of just watching watching yeah. something at home the, the sharing of the air being in a space means something when the lights drop down and you feel that rush through the crowd it's, as the time a concert starts you cannot replicate that at home you cannot get those goosebumps at home but laura i also have found it somewhat appealing to watch these concerts at home or shows at home with one caveat the audio and video quality has to be there. That was one of the things during a lot of those early 2020 shows that I found mm -hmm. unbearable because the audio was so bad and the video was so bad. Whereas if you look at what Coachella does with their free live streams of their music festival every spring, the audio and video is impeccable. The quality is amazing. So if you give me the quality, I will take my couch. Yeah, and you know, this was good. It could have been better on some of the like choruses. You did lose a little bit of the words, but I loved, I could actually zoom in on the performers' faces, oh, cool. which is something I couldn't have done if I'd been in the audience. So, um, you know, that's a big part of a lot of performances as well as those facial expressions. So it did open that up for me. Laura, thank you for this. It's great to have you on board as the entertainment reporter on the show. You're going to do a great job, and you brought it with a big high note on the first one. That was very <laughs> nice. Hopefully this isn't the crescendo on your first day. Boy, I sure hope not. Uh, thanks, <laughs> thanks, Dave. <laughs> and we'll I will see. stop with the puns. We'll see about that. Coming up after the break, a couple of regional news stories and Brock Richardson with a sports chat. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv.
Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. You are you. It is September, not September, it's Tuesday, October the 17th, 2023. I don't know why I think it's September. Coming up in the second hour of the show, the Manitoba election results are still resonating with folks. Journalist John Lepke reflects on the impact of the NDP's victory. And it's another edition of the weekly news quiz with a special guest appearance by sports reporter Brock Richardson going head-to-head -head with Alex Smythe and Karen McGee. Hopefully uh, Brock's paying attention here because you never know if something on the news quiz is going to come from the regional news updates. Beginning in British Columbia, BC Solicitor General Mike Farnworth has introduced legislation that amends the province's Police Act and ensures the city of Surrey must continue with its transition to a municipal police force. Farnworth says the legislation creates a framework for future situations. Uh, it also makes it clear in terms of moving forward for other uh, local governments that would like to, uh, to make a change, uh, the process by which they do that and makes it clear that uh, if you were to make a decision to change to another uh, policing agency, uh, you are not going back. The city of Surrey has filed a petition in court asking for a judicial review of the government's directive. Mayor Brenda Locke shares her perspective. This is going to be generational. This is going to be forever. This is going to be for my kids, my grandkids, and we need to make sure that we have protected the taxpayer in our city. And over to Ontario, the Insurance Bureau of Canada says this summer's severe storms and flash floods in the province caused more than $340 million in losses. Don Kelly takes a closer look. And that's just the initial estimate. Almost a quarter of the losses involved repairing or replacing storm-damaged vehicles. IBC says the Ottawa region was hit hardest. It designated five storms over the summer as catastrophes. That means they're estimated to have caused more than $30 million in insured damages. Don Kelly, The Canadian Press, Toronto. And over to the Atlantic provinces, the Newfoundland and Labrador legislature resumed yesterday with a debate about housing. The legislature reopened after Premier Andrew Fury announced a five-point plan to create more affordable housing. The $65 million plan includes a forgivable loan of up to $40,000 for homeowners to add a secondary or basement suite apartment. Progressive Conservative members accused Fury of taking far too long to address the province's housing crisis. That's your look at the regional news. Let's bring in Brock Richardson for a sports chat. We've got a couple clips here related to Major League Baseball's playoffs. The Texas Rangers remain undefeated in MLB's playoffs. They took game two of their series with the Houston Astros. Five to four, Texas pounced on Houston pitcher Framder Valdez in the first inning. Rangers second baseman Marcus Simeon says the team had a strong scouting report on Valdez. He's got a 96-mile-an-hour sinker and a big curveball. Mixes the changeup, other other pitches, too, that are all going down. Um, so it's not necessarily about I'm going to swing at every pitch I see. It's about swinging at the pitches up that you can handle. And he gave us some to handle, and we, we did just enough to put some balls in play and make it tough on him. 
And on the National League side, the Philadelphia Phillies powered past the Arizona Diamondbacks 5-3. Diamondbacks third baseman Evan Longoria lamented his team's slow starts. We got started late, um, you know, uh, as the game went on offensively, you know, we started to put together some better at-bats, um, you know, we put some, put some pressure on them, and uh, ultimately we just, you know, we didn't get the big hit we needed tonight. Brock, you want to start on the American League side. Uh, you took note of the way the Rangers pounced on Houston's starting pitcher. Yeah, it's, it's really incredible to watch uh, game plans that are put together by teams. And I think one of the reasons this came to my mind as I was watching the game is recently in one of the broadcasts, they were talking about how teams have such ability to to use those electronic machines that allow you to, you know, set up uh, pitches where they, it'll electronically, you know, throw the, throw the ball for you and they can set it up so that, you know, the pitcher you're facing, um, it'll, it'll show you how much spin there is, how much speeds coming at them. And so sometimes those, those kind of things can, can help you. But I also think sometimes wait, the wait, eye Bro test. Brock, I got to stop you. So you're talking about in batting practice, having machines that are replicating starting pitchers. Yes, that's right. Uh, the, the machines that, that can totally replicate the spin rate, the, the, the movement, all those things. And I, I, I think those help help you and 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 they can be help help but the other thing that can really be of help is the eye test and using your own eyes in the game and and recognizing what a pitcher is giving you I, I think between the two things that can build you a really good game plan and i think that's what we saw uh from the the texas rangers as they just keep rolling on through the playoffs and and they've got uh max scherzer going in the next game coming up so they're they're really set up really well here against uh, the houston astros and I know yesterday we talked about uh, Dusty Baker not being so worried about game number one. I wonder if he's a little more worried after oh. game two because oh, yeah. dropping dropping the second game is is a bit of an issue when you go to Texas and now you got to play three games in a row the way the the playoffs are set up in Texas. So we're, we're looking at some trouble here for for uh, for. Houston. Yeah, dropping the first game at home is one thing. Dropping the second game at home is another thing. And now you start wondering about the inevitability of this Texas Rangers team. When you haven't lost a game in a couple of weeks, yes, momentum is simply tomorrow's starting pitcher and one or two mistakes or one or two errors. But right now it's up and down the lineup, offensive contribution contributions for the Texas Rangers. You never know who's going to get you on any given night, but so so far in the playoffs, somebody's going to get you. Hey, you know what? And when tomorrow's starting pitcher for the Texas Ranger is uh, Max Scherzer, that's uh, that, that's a pretty, yeah. good, uh, pretty good tomorrow starting pitcher. <laughs> Multiple-time Cy Young winner is the best pitcher in the league. Multiple-time World Series winner. Yeah, Max Scherzer, uh, pretty good. Pretty good baseball yeah. player. Pretty good pitcher. Yeah. Uh, Brock, yeah. the National League side, the Philadelphia Phillies taking that 1-0 series lead over the Diamondbacks. Again, one game, maybe not the end of the world, but Philadelphia also showed off a lot of power last night. They were crushing anything that was thrown over the plates. Yeah, I mean, another really sort of uh, good, good game plan. I would say that if it was in the strike zone, they were – saying we're going to hit it, um, which is totally fine. I think you got to shout out the uh, Philadelphia Phillies who have decided, listen, we're going to, we're going to just beat you down with home runs. You know, they, they get another a three game, a three home run game with uh, Kyle Schwarber 
Uh, Bryce Harper and Nick Castellanos all hitting home runs yesterday. Had an outstanding game from Zach Wheeler and then a shutdown uh, inning from closer Craig Kimbrell, who, by the way, has the most weird, unorthodox delivery. Sure it's almost does. like he's hanging over a coat rack as he uh, delivers a pitch. His arms are 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 extended like in a in a very strange way. It it almost looks like a zombie esque as he's he's delivering a pitch. But hey, works out and uh, all good. But yeah, one me, of the strangest let one me of see, the strangest styles. Let me see if I can offer a better description of that, Brock. He puts his arms out in front of him, almost that the arms are straight, with his elbows tucked into his body, and he raises his leg almost like he's a praying mantis, and then releases the <laughs> ball. It's like it's a really bizarre thing, but he's been one of the best closers in baseball for almost 15 years. So something's working in there my my mom is a huge fan of, of him and and she she just loves the delivery and she she was always one of these people that would say man i wish the jays would get in because i'd love to watch him every day and and you know people have these weird um little things that make them tick in like a a pre-throw uh warm-up or a pre-shot routine and whatever works for him i i'm all for but man does it ever look a little bit weird but Hey, weird work, so on we go. That's the beautiful thing about baseball. They can uh, try to coach personality out of technique, but sometimes just doing stuff weird doesn't mean you're doing it wrong. And every now and then, you get a superstar like Craig Kimbrell, who's uh, one of the best in the league. Hey, Brock, no time for hockey today, but uh, you'll be back in about 30 minutes for the weekly news quiz. So uh, good hey. luck, my friend. Thank you. Looking forward to it. That is Brock Richardson at the AMI Sports Desk coming up after the break. The Manitoba election results still resonating with folks, including journalist John Lepke. He'll reflect on the impact of the NDP's victory. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv, the results of the Manitoba election continue to resonate with folks. Wab Canoe and the NDP picked up a majority government. They knocked down Heather Stephenson and the Progressive Conservative Party, who'd been in power for nearly a decade. Canoe becomes the first Indigenous provincial premier in Canada, and journalist John Lepke wanted to reflect on the election results. Hey, good morning, John. Good morning, Dave. So, John, you're one province over in Saskatchewan, but why did the NDP's victory in Manitoba catch your attention? Absolutely. I mean, in Saskatchewan, we're going on uh, significantly longer than a decade with the Conservative <laughs> government. And uh, it's interesting to see, you know, a few years ago, uh, Notley's government fell in Alberta. So when, you're, when your neighbours are shifting political ideologies, you know, uh, if we're looking at a map to the left, trending more conservative, to the right, trending more left, um, it, it begs the question where that impact is going to come in, in your own province. John, I, I, I do want to get your thoughts about what you're following in Manitoba here in the first couple months of P Premier Canoe's mandate, but I'm, 
also curious about the identity of the NDP in the prairies, because one of the notable things that's occurring here is the absolute decimation of the liberal brand in Western Canada and across the prairies. What is the identity of the NDP in the prairies? Well, historically, if we look at the history of Saskatchewan, um, Historically, the NDP have been very strong in this province up until the last two decades. Uh, very originally, very rooted in rural Saskatchewan, we've certainly seen that flip completely on its head. Um, but really, this province and certainly certain members of certain generations consider it a very leftist province. I always call Saskatchewan a crisis in terms, right? Where where the the home base of Tommy Douglas, and we have this current. Uh, South Party government fighting a pronoun policy. Um, certainly our, our histories, if you would have predicted our um, political history into the 21st century in the mid-20th century, I don't think you would have predicted this level of conservatism. When you're talking about conservatism, that brand does not mean the same thing across the country. It means one thing in British Columbia, it certainly means something different in the prairies, for the most part, it means something different in Atlantic Canada, although, as you mentioned, uh, pronoun policy, that is certainly coming to the forefront in New Brunswick. In fact, it's the first mm -hmm. day of the New Brunswick legislature resuming, and there's the possibility of uh, upheaval within the party and a snap election being called based purely on that crisis of identity within that party. But circle back to the NDP. What makes the NDP different in the prairies compared to, say, the British Columbia version of the NDP or the Ontario mm -hmm. conception of the NDP? I think it's fair to call the Alberta NDP uh, small if you were going to strip away party descriptions for a second, you know, sort of the stereotypes of what these parties mean, as you as you indicated. I think it would be fair to call the Alberta NDP um, small c conservative if we were to 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 pull away the scale things like ndp in, in british columbia i would argue are less likely to be to be cheering on pipelines and these sorts of economical or ecological uh impacts um you're much more likely to see the ndp at say at oil and gas convention we saw that in saskatchewan in the lead up to the last election um and part of that is you know you have to meet people where they're at but I, I certainly don't see the NDP as in this province as particularly left as as some of its uh, um, some of its relatives in eastern Canada, shall we say. So circling back into Manitoba here, what's on your radar over the first couple months of Premier Canoe's mandates? It is a majority government, so like he's got some he's got some leeway here. Mm -hmm. I mean, absolutely. As uh, uh, last time I was here, you had two uh, correspondents talking. We were on the eve of the election that day. And certainly some of the things that were discussed then, um, things like the uh, the landfill search, but also just how we how we see, as you mentioned, to being the first Indigenous Premier, how does that impact the policy decisions of the NDP in Manitoba? And how can we see a difference from the very, very, very white uh, leaders that we see and have seen historically in the prairies. It's going to be really interesting to see. And also, because the other prairie NDP party of recent memory and power, that being the Alberta NDP, be interesting to see how they, I know it's terrible to talk about an election right after an election, but how they model themselves to continue that momentum in a way that Notley and the Alberta NDP weren't able to do. Mm -hmm. I 
John, what struck me within a week of winning the election, Premier Canoe was out meeting with municipal leaders, uh, specifically Winnipeg and Brandon, and there was a very, very comfortable and at-ease press conference between uh, Wab Canoe and Winnipeg Mayor Scott Gillingham talking about their shared interest in addressing homelessness in the city. Now, certainly policy matters here. Anybody can say anything they want to at a press conference, but Premier Canoe outright said, I am going to give the city resources, we are going to collaborate, and I want to end structural homelessness inside 10 years. If anybody who's been to Winnipeg understands what's going on in that city, there is poverty, there is homelessness, like any other major city in Canada, but you don't oftentimes hear a premier talking about that as their number one priority coming out of, coming out of an election. Mm -hmm. and, and Manitoba, you know, Winnipeg being sort of the center of Manitoban life, as we often see in the prairies, where one, one or two cities sort of dominate the narrative. It's really interesting to see, as you mentioned, the ease of that conversation, because oftentimes it's the municipality. When there's discord, it starts at the municipal level. Oh, our provincial government isn't doing any for us in, you know, insert city here. And then that leads to the discord that we see in the legislature and then on into an election. Yeah, you see that in Ontario right now, the city of Toronto and the province clashing heads. You see that in Nova Scotia right now, the city of Halifax and the province of Nova Scotia clashing heads over a housing policy. So yeah, it's, it's not uncommon to see that kind of battle, but it is quite refreshing when you see uh, collaboration between political leaders. Uh, John, let's and do an, oh, go ahead, go ahead, please. I was, sorry, I was just going to say, and, and not unlike what we see when the provincial governments so discord about the federal government as yeah, uh, right. uh, as the Saskatchewan government is, is doing right now in, in, and consistently. And I just saw an Alberta uh, energy ad on the TV yesterday about, um, you know, tell, tell the feds our, our commodity prices matter and we've got to keep the lights on with a family in the dark in their kitchen. Um, it's really uh, cyclical, if we want to call it that. Yeah, I've seen that ad popping up as well, the campaign about uh, the renewable energy policies and the electrification of the grid. Uh, some provinces, uh, not to be named specifically in that ad, uh, putting some money behind that one. Hey, John, no easy way to uh, uh, to elegantly go from one topic to the other here, <laughs> but uh, there was the passing of a Saskatchewan Rough Riders great, George Reed, a couple of days ago, beloved in the community for far more than just playing football. What is George Reed's legacy outside of the Canadian Football League. Absolutely. So after after retiring, he stayed in the province, which I'm not going to say is an un, unlikely event. It certainly happens a lot more with the the older legends of the game than, than our current ones. Um, but he really stayed in the community. He founded a foundation uh, that supports underprivileged people, including uh, uh, disabled folks. Um, and I used to work in arts nonprofit, and I sort of kind of joke that you can tell somebody's made an impact when somebody makes a play about them. Um, and, and last year, there was a, a Globe Theatre show, uh, our local regional theatre in Regina, uh, surrounding his his years with the Riders. And, you know, he was on set, and, and many of those photos of of that time were, were spread around after his, his recent passing. 
What do you think it is about Saskatchewan, and, and maybe it's the writer's culture more specifically, that keeps people there? That maybe people don't out, outright think to themselves, one day I'm aspirationally going to go live in Regina or Saskatoon, but then they get there and they're like, man, this is nice, I like this. Yeah, it's like when I interview people and I, they say, I've been to Saskatchewan, and I go, why? Um, <laughs> and they tell me vacation, and then I'm even more confused. But, it, you know, in George Reed's case, and for a lot of those older legends, it was because they were given jobs in the community or they were they were offered opportunities for jobs in the community, I should say. So, um, you know, George Reed, as I understand it, worked for SAS Gaming for a long time. One of his kids represented Canada. You know, really, those legends got an opportunity to stay in community um, and, and, and live and, and work here. I mean, certainly George Reed, American, right? So... Um, stayed there and even when we see um there was recently a, a bringing together of of the most recent gray cup team uh Corey sheets uh folks like that coming to the province um and even then we see the camaraderie of i remember living here in a way that i'd argue you don't see in those bigger centers um that are a part of the canadian football league because really um and not to toot my province's own horn here it is the one game in town um, mm. aside from junior hockey. And that really lends itself to, you know, there are the goods and the ills of it. I, I compare it to being a Green Bay Packer fan, if there are any out there, where when you're the one game in town and you're a community-owned team, people really feel engaged. And that means if you're a legend like George Reed was and you made the community impact, I mean, Ron Lancaster, speaking of the same generation, has a, a restaurant named after him. Here yeah, in Virginia. yeah. So... There's really that. Um, it's almost the uh, provincial myth-making of this province includes the riders, and that's why I think that if they choose to stay here, they find a home here. I, it certainly happens across a couple CFL markets. I wonder how much of it's actually, if you end up going to a place for 10 years in your 20s, into your 30s, how, how much you don't want to leave because you don't want to move your stuff. Don't want to move your stuff? You know, uh, I think maybe for some of these players... Canadian healthcare might be a, uh, Ooh, yep. a uh, yeah, that's a good uh, one. A plus, and and also, you know, when you've built a connection to the place, when you are playing in a league where you do oftentimes, outside of a couple of quarterbacks, have to take a summer job anyway. Um, you know, if you don't have to move and you can build community. Why not? Yeah, open up a car dealership. Uh, John, <laughs> thank you for this. <laughs> have a great day. You as well. That's John Lepke, a journalist based in Saskatchewan. Coming up after the break, today marks the five-year anniversary of cannabis legalization. The industry has been, um, shall we call it, up and down for those financially involved. Alex Smythe is bringing that issue to the roundtable. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's been five years since cannabis was legalized in Canada. And Alex Smythe, that's got you fired up for a roundtable conversation. 
Uh, yeah, Dave, it's just I wanted to take some time and reflect on on the five years since legalization uh, came about. You know, companies spread it out quick, but it seemed like they they started to run up against uh, a prickly market and a series of regulations. Aurora CEO Miguel Martin spoke out about how many how companies had to diversify and change their original plans. A lot of cannabis companies have evolved and are different than maybe what they were before. I think, you know, we are first and foremost a Canadian-based, you know, medical cannabis company. That's the vast majority of our profitability. It's the vast majority of our revenue. It's what we spend the most amount of time on. But Aurora themselves also pivoted originally because now they've started to invest in plants and veggies, and even one of their closing facilities has been retrofitted to grow orchids. So let's greenhouses, cultivate. Greenhouses are going to greenhouse. Exactly, Dave, right? You already got the infrastructure there. So let's cultivate a bit of a conversation about these past five years of legalization in Canada. So, Ramia, we'll start with you on this. Has the kind of legalization played out as you envisioned it would in Canada? I don't know what to envision necessarily, but I do think that um, you know many companies, entities, every person who had any money to invest in anything um, felt like maybe this was the opportunity of a lifetime. Like we were going through a massive change and we kind of saw maybe how it could play out based on other legalizations in our lifetime and nearby locations like the U.S. And... Um, you know, wanted to go for it, right? Wanted to go for all these different venues or avenues of how we can get in on this nice, juicy trend. Uh, and I think that's why, like now five years later, it gives us a lot more to, to kind of retrospect on and think about to say, okay, well, maybe we kind of were a little overzealous on a lot of these different things. Um, Romeo, because it's Romeo, opportunities. When, when you say that, you're talking about mm -hmm. the private sector companies that have uh, been encountering a rocky market landscape, right? Yes, yes. And, uh, and also just like individuals, you know, when, I guess it's all related, but basically, you know, if you wanted to uh, take part in something or think that you can make some money off of it, even as just like an investor, mm -hmm. you know, like trading and all that. Uh, yeah, there was just so much of that conversation everywhere you went, Dave. Yeah, the, there were a lot of people in my life who started throwing their hard-earned dollars into invest, investment accounts on speculative Absolutely. penny stocks, on major companies like Aurora, on companies like Canopy uh, Growth Core. Canopy Growth Core, one point uh, not that long ago, in January of 2021, was trading at like $120 a share, and now it's trading mm -hmm. at less than $2 a share because the market has been so landscape. But I think that's a little bit of naivete from the market, and I think it's a little bit of naivete from people who jumped into the market market thinking this that green was the new gold not necessarily mm -hmm. considering that anytime there's an emerging marketplace or an emerging industry there's going to be tons of volatility while you're trying to figure out who a market leader is and that's probably not dissimilar to what you found with the tech sector in the 1990s and the dot-com boom that came crashing down in the early 2000s people raced to the space 
found out it was really competitive, didn't know how to differentiate themselves, and their business model came clashing down. I think in terms of the way people envisioned the cannabis industry, there was some naivete that was driven by mainstream media narratives that were just sort of encouraging people, oh, put your money into the weed market, mm -hmm. as opposed to being like, you should be rational with your money just like any other investment. Alex, that's my long preamble of uh, bouncing mm -hmm. the question back to you. Yeah, so for me, I actually had envisioned that vape stores and a lot of companies that already had built-in infrastructure would have pivoted or or widened their, their market share into cannabis once it became legalized. I didn't quite see that happen as much. Maybe it was because, you know, early on there were certain, um, I remember at the very early stages, it, it was giving out licenses and the, to get a license was so challenging and competitive to, to break into that space initially. It was always the race to be the first one to market. Uh, so I thought because it's- Which is never in, necessarily the best business practice. No, no, absolutely. But I, I saw like in the lead up to the legalization, you saw so many vape stores open up, vape mm. specialties to shops. So I thought, okay, they're setting themselves up for when it is legalized that they can just add to their already existing product line. They already have the infrastructure. They already have the storefronts. That really didn't happen. It was all these new, just cannabis specific stores popped up. and. There, there's still quite a few of them there, but I mean, how many have come and gone? I think that sheer volume of just the options available and and really the hesitancy uh, for the most part to, to jump in from a consumer standpoint early on because a lot of people were saying, the prices were too high. The They're product, still... no, no, the product sucked. That was the problem well, for the first year. The product sucked. And I think I'll, I'll, was... I'll tip my hand here. I'm a cannabis yeah. consumer. The product yeah. sucked for the first 12 months. Like, point final and, period. And and also the the options were so limited as well, right, Dave? Like uh, you know, people were at first somewhat excited about the uh, Ontario Cannabis Store, uh, the online shop that you could buy through the Ontario government, and there was literally like two or three products, and that was it. Like it, it, it felt like it was a very poorly executed launch to what was highly anticipated, and, yeah. and there was all these different factors that played into why it didn't quite start off on the right foot. And the bud was stale, and it took them mm -hmm. almost two years to bring edibles to the market. There were all these things that came up so short in the first couple of years of the legal framework. I think the consumer experience has gotten a ton better in the last couple of years. Depending on your province, uh, there are people in <laughs> Quebec who uh, would definitely suggest to you that the situation is pretty terrible in that province right now. But Ramya, I, I do wonder how much of the way people perceive cannabis legalization is literally based on narratives from three and a half, four years ago. Listen, if somebody doesn't smoke cannabis or consume cannabis, they're not gonna know the situation has gone gotten better at the consumer level. They're just going to sure. see news stories they saw for the first year about chaos in the industry, and now they're going to see news stories they see now about chaos in the industry and assume it's god-awful and terrible, when frankly, there are people who've emerged in the space. It just hasn't been the big boon they thought it would be from a private sector point of view. Still plenty of tax dollars being collected here. Oh yeah, that's definitely true. And that's the thing, right? There's this interesting parallel between the, the people, the consumers of cannabis, the people who can kind of give you like the first-hand account of how the industry feels or how the last five years feel, how the, uh, like, the hype around legalization versus the reality around legalization feels versus people who aren't actually consumers who were just kind of part of the trends. And, and there were a lot of people, right, obviously, who aren't consumers who still took part in the 
you know, legalization uh, through the uh, investor perspective or just like the opinion of, I don't know, or maybe let's do this or let's do that. When you mentioned edibles, it reminds me of like how much of a chaotic conversation that was around uh, rules and regulations around edibles and serving some kind of um, like any kind of marijuana product in restaurants and bars and pubs and drinks. And yeah. there was just yeah. so much of that going on that felt like, you know, trending uh conversation but not real like not realistic enough to be like okay guys we don't even know what we're talking about yet and that's what i'm talking about this parallel and this giant gap between actually people who concern uh, consume cannabis and people who are just like yeah yeah yeah, let's do this 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 and this as i said <laughs> overzealous i gotta say though at this point i love it i love that i can be out on the town hanging out in the evening and uh, maybe pop across the street and grab a little joint on the fly sure. when the time comes like from a consumer point of view, living in a big city, I have found the process in the last couple of years to be really, really good. Alex, you got to be quick on this. I'm making you yeah. the cannabis czar. What changes are you making? <laughs> well, first off, LCBOs are going to be carrying cannabis products like they're carrying alcohol products. Like just make it in store purchases through the Ontario government for the government of Ontario. Make that change. Uh, I would also like to see the advertising like really be on par with what you're allowed for alcohol products to advertise because it, it's been so restricted and so tight-knit, but we need to view them as the same. They're both regulated. They're both uh, approved by the government for uh, adults. Make it equal uh, for both uh, both parties and <laughs> yeah. both in advertising. I like that. Take away some of the age-gating restrictions that don't yeah. exist for alcohol or gambling. Or, or equalize them. Make it the same for gambling and alcohol then. Oh, um, uh, but, uh, but how am I going to know where to play uh, lots of slots uh, on my favorite <laughs> app on my phone? Uh, Alex, thank you for this. You're going to be back for the news quiz in just a moment. Ramya, you are going to be hosting Kelly and Ramya this afternoon, 2 p.m. Eastern time on AMI. What's coming up on the show? Yep, we're talking about signs and symptoms of dementia, how we can minimize the risks of getting it. Frances Wong is talking about this on our wellness chat. Also, Young Wong, is, uh, she joins us monthly as our freelance journalist, and today she's continuing conversations around advocacy. We've been basically just sharing a lot of experiences, positive, negative, sometimes the frustrating and impatient um, experiences we've had, so she's going to continue on that thread. And how sick can our pets get with pancreatitis, and how can it be treated? This is oh. the conversation we're having with vet Daniel Jonkine. I well, know. I'm going to skip that one. That sounds sad. I don't like thinking about dying pets. Treatment. Uh, treatment. Ramya, thank you for this. <laughs> Thanks, Dave. That's Ramya. And within the co-host of Kelly and Ramya coming your way 2 p.m. Eastern time on AMI-TV and AMI-audio. Coming up after the break, it's another edition of the Weekly News Quiz with special guest Brock Richardson. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-TV. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's the last segment of the Tuesday show. That means it's time to fire up the weekly news quiz. There are three contestants joining the mix. Sports reporter Brock Richardson, 
Are you ready? I'm as ready as I'm gonna be. AMI content development specialist, Karen McGee. Are you ready? Yes, going up the sports guy and the news guy, I feel very ready. And co-host Alex Smythe, are you ready? I, I'm, I'm more ready now that I'm the news guy and not the weather guy, yeah, so I appreciate exactly. that. Exactly, I'll tell you a story sometime uh, when we have more time about someone once sending me an email about being the weather guy when I was actually the traffic guy. The rules of the game, mm -hmm. there are three rounds of questions. There are three questions per round. Each question comes with three choices. If you answer the question without the choices, you get two points. If you need the options, you get one. If you get it wrong, another contestant gets the chance to steal the point. The order will be Brock, Karen, and Alex. So round number one, all the questions coming from international news. Brock, Russia has announced a ban on seafood from an Asian country. Which country is having their seafood banned? I need the options. Is it Japan, China, or South Korea? South Korea. That is incorrect. Karen, a chance for a steal. Japan? That is correct. One point for Karen McGee. Russia is implementing the restrictions after the Fukushima nuclear power plant started releasing treated radioactive wastewater into the ocean. Yum, yum, yum. Karen. Question number two of round number one going to you. Indonesia's top court has decided to maintain a minimum age for presidential candidates. What is the minimum age to run for president in Indonesia? I'll take the choices. Is it 35, 40, or 45? I'll go 35. That is incorrect. Alex, a chance for a steal. Well, that was going to be my guess, so I'll go for the next best thing, and I'll say 40. Yeah, 40. That is correct. One point for Alex Smythe. Seven politicians filed a challenge this summer to lower the age limit to 35. But the top court said, nay, nay, 40 is good enough. If it's good enough for America, it's good enough for Indonesia. Question number three, heading over to Alex, who has a point on the board and a chance to take the lead. A South Pacific country has fined Twitter over $350,000 for its policies around sexual exploitation content of children. Which country issued the fine? Can I get the options, please, Dave? Is it Australia, New Zealand, or Fiji? You know, I, I was leaning towards, yeah, like a country like Fiji, so I'll go with my gut, Fiji, Dave. That is incorrect. Brock, a chance for a steal, Australia or New Zealand? New Zealand. That is incorrect. Karen McGee gets the default point. Australia's e-safety commission describes itself as the world's first government agency dedicated to peeping, keeping people safe online. Not peeping people safe online. That's totally different. The commission issued legal notices earlier this year to Twitter. E-safety commissioner Julie Inman Grant says Twitter failed to adequately respond to a number of questions. So after round one, Karen McGee holds two points. Alex Smythe holds one. Brock's still sitting on the big goose egg. Round number two, all these questions coming from the world of sports and starting with Karen McGee. Karen, Kim Ang has been the general manager of a Major League Baseball team for three seasons. She will be stepping down from that role. What team did Kim Ang manage? 
Okay, I read these stories because I find it fascinating, and she has every right to step down. She's doing the right thing, but I'll take the choices. Is it the Minnesota Twins, the Milwaukee Brewers, or the Miami Marlins? Marlins. That is correct. Kim Eng was the first woman to hold the position of general manager in Major League Baseball. I uh, loathe David Sampson, the former owner of the uh, Miami Marlins, but his podcast, Nothing Personal, went deep into this topic. Oh boy, was it good. I still have a deep despise for uh, David Sampson, though. Uh, three points for Karen McGee, one for Alex, zero for Brock. Alex, here's a chance for you to uh, chase after Karen. Toronto Maple Leafs forward Austin Matthews started the NHL season with back-to-back -back hat tricks. Only five players have done that in the history of the league. Alex, who was the last player in league history to start a season with back-to-back th -back three goal games? I'll need the options, Dave. Is it the great one, Wayne Gretzky? Is it the great eight, Alex Ovechkin? Or is it Maurice Rocket-Richard? Uh, I, I feel like it, it's happened more recently, so I'm going to go with Ovechkin. That is correct. One point for Alex Smythe. Before Ovechkin did it in 2017, you had to go back to the 1917-1918 season. Three players did it that year. Cy Dennery, Joe Malone, and Reg Noble. So there you go. A little bit of history for you there. But uh, Karen remains in the lead with three. But Alex is now chasing the coattails with two. Brock, you got to get off the snide here. And it's a sports question for the sports reporter. The Boston Celtics have hired a former broadcaster to be a senior consultant on their coaching staff. Who did they hire? Oh, I need the choices. Is it Jeff Van Gundy, Mark Jackson, or Doug Collins? I think it's Jeff Van Gundy. That is correct. One point for Brock Richardson. Van Gundy was ESPN's NBA broadcast lead for over a decade. He had previously been the head coach for the New York Knicks and Houston Rockets. So after two rounds, it's anybody's game. Karen McGee, three points. Alex Smythe, two. Brock with one. Alex, you get the first crack at this question. A provincial government wants to double university tuition for out-of-province students. What province is rolling out this decision? Uh, options, please, Dave. Is it Quebec, New Brunswick, or Nova Scotia? I'm going to go with Quebec. That is correct. Tuition for Canadians outside Quebec will jump to $17,000, up from $8,992. Higher Education Minister Pascal Derry says Quebec taxpayers should not subsidize people who may not stay in the province after graduating. By the way, this topic has already come through the uh, news panel email chain. This will be discussed in depth on Friday with myself, Joita Gupta and Michelle McQuig. So Alex Smythe putting a pretty nice lead here, but still lots of opportunities to catch up with two questions left on the board. Brock, this question headed to you. An astrological event happened over North American skies over the weekend. What was the astrological happening? I need the options. Is it a meteor shower, an aurora borealis, or an eclipse? I think it was an Aurora Borealis. That is incorrect. Karen McGee, an opportunity for a big steal here. 
It was the eclipse. That's An right. Eclipse. That's right. The Ring of Fire eclipse. There will be a total eclipse next April. It will crisscross North America, starting in Mexico and finishing in eastern Canada. That was a massive steal point for Karen McGee because Karen, with the last question of the third round, if you go without the options, you win the whole gosh darn thing. Are you excited? No pressure. You do this every time, and then I choke hard. <laughs> so like... um, I don't know if you're going to choke. I oh, that's choke. even worse. Stop. This is all part of the zeitgeist. This one's coming from the zeitgeist. So, Ugh. Karen, Taylor Swift's Eras Tour Cinema Experience topped the box office last weekend. T-Swizz, as I call her, isn't the only female pop star with a major concert film dropping this year. There's another big one scheduled for December the 1st. Who is the other performer? It's, I got to swing for the fence here, it's, but it's got to be Beyonce because she's on tour too. That is correct, Karen McGee with the big two-point slam dunk buzzer beater. It's Beyonce, Renaissance, a film by Beyonce will be in theaters on December the 1st. And with that, coming from behind, the winner is... Karen McGee, I bet that one felt good. Well, it's Taylor Swift, and I'm learning about her. She's dating a football guy. <laughs> Who would have thought that uh, you could combine the brands of the National Football League and Taylor Swift to turn America's economy primarily into a Taylor Swift-centric uh, economy? But that's the only thing stopping us from going into full recession right now, the NFL and Taylor Swift. Hey, just for the heck of it, you guys want to do the uh, tie-breaking question? I deliberately did something different because I wrote the quiz today. Sure, let's yes, do please. it. All right, I love this. Okay, so what I'm going to do here is I'm going to ask the question. You all get to answer. Whoever gets closest to the actual number wins. This came up in the last segment of the show. Today marks the five-year anniversary of recreational cannabis legalization in Canada. Consumers and dispensaries are asking regulators to allow stronger edibles. There is currently a legal cap on how many milligrams of THC can be found in an individual edible. What is the current legal limit? Brock, you get the first crack at this. Um, uh, 10 milligrams. Alex Smythe, what's your guess? Uh, I'm gonna say they want to increase it to 200. No, no, the current legal limit. Oh, the, cur uh, the current legal limit. So I will go with 80. 200 milligrams, holy smokes. I want to party with Alex Smythe on the weekend. <laughs> Karen McGee. <laughs> I'll say 100, but can I phone a friend? No <laughs> you can phone me. Uh, I was going to say you. <laughs> Brock, hit it on the pin. The current legal limit is 10 oh. milligrams per individual Brock. edible. So, Brock, well done by you, sir. We've got a bonus point there for Mr. Richardson on his way out the door. Congratulations, Karen. Congratulations, Brock. Congratulations, Alex, that's all the time there is for the show today. Don't worry, Now with Dave Brown comes back again tomorrow morning, 9 a.m. Eastern time. The show kicks off. How are robots and artificial intelligence infecting the investment industry? Certified financial planner Ryan Chin will share his perspective on robo-advisors. Until then, I'm Dave Brown reminding you to play safe, play fair, but don't forget to have some fun.
Hi, I'm Jenny Bovard. Join me monthly for Low Vision Moments, where I speak with awesome guests about some of the amusing things that happen when you're blind or partially sighted. Watch on YouTube or download Low Vision Moments from your favorite podcast distributor.